All right, beautiful humans, welcome back to another episode of Naked Sunday. I'm your host, Caleb Nelson. I have the amazing pleasure to welcome Jillian Bennett from across the globe. You're in Spain right now, right? I am in Barcelona and it is it is evening time in Barcelona. It is morning time for you, I believe, right? I'm, I'm actually at one o'clock right now. This is so much fun. Oh, okay. You know, we're spanning the globe. Is it Barcelona? That's the, is it the, the king um, of Spanish? I, I actually, I mean, not, I, not to make you feel bad, but yeah. if you come here and you say Barcelona, I will take you aside and say, Caleb, <laughs> just say Barcelona. It's okay. <laughs> I personally, when I say it, I say Barcelona because that's like, it's like when, when you go to, um, Wisconsin and they say Wisconsin, but you don't go there and say Wisconsin because that's not how your accent is. Right. And so that's kind of how it goes. <laughs> God, I love it. I love that. We're starting with language stuff. I, I, I really, you know, I like to start this off always with my appreciation for the person that comes on and sits with me. Our, we've had two, three conversations at this point. I, I think you're just a lovely human being. And I like, talking to people who are bilingual because you start thinking differently when you can bridge the gap between different languages. And I think there's something that comes with that. There's a, I think there's an empathy that comes with that when you see that the world can look different for other people. But if you're able to cross those boundaries yourself, you're, you're able to do that. But if it's always like, this is my language, this is the way the world's framed, it's so difficult, which is also lends to like why travel is so great. But, um, you know, I've just, I've loved every one of your conversations, especially I just was complimenting you before we got on here about your, your, um, your recent content on your, your Instagram. I've really appreciated your vulnerability that I've seen in a couple of your posts where it's just like, this is kind of where I'm coming from. And I believe we live in a world right now where we could really use a lot of vulnerability. And I think it takes a lot of strength, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of courage to really open up in a, a public format and say, Hey, this is where I'm coming from. I want to help you. If you are struggling with the same thing, like, let me, here's a bit of me to, so you know that like we can do this together. So I want to compliment you on that because I think it's awesome. And I think that your clients must really benefit from somebody who's, who's willing to go there with them. And, um, Thank you. Yeah. I want to tell you all I, that, you know. I, yeah, thank you. I really, I really, really appreciate that. And I, I, you know what, it's, it's, it's amazing that you say that. And it's, it's so, it feels so good to be recognized for that one, because I feel like sometimes you feel like you're speaking to an empty, like an empty amphitheater. And then also because when I started my Instagram, I refused to even take selfies or post photos of myself. I was really, really, um, that was really hard for me to, to bring it past. Like, I remember the first, you know, six months was just me posting pictures of what I ate, um, to be like, you know, eat more vegetables. And I realized that when I did start to open up about the journey that I had been on and the way that my life had changed, um, I actually became like a place of connection rather than just like a showroom. And, and honestly, you know, sometimes I feel like with social media, like yesterday, for example, I saw an ad on social media. There was like some influencer influencer promoting vegan protein water. And I just like wanted to like slam my head into the wall and be like, why is this a product that we need in our world right now? Like there are so many other things 
that we need that are not vegan protein water, you know? And, but then I remember that I get to share and connect with people, like, especially, you know, one of the things that I share about a lot is, is my, my struggles with, um, with emotional eating, my struggles with body image. Um, you know, I came from being like a chubby kid, never ate vegetables, used to pretend I was allergic to vegetables. Um, my family thinks that it's hilarious that I like eat vegetables like crazy now. And, um, and so being able to share that and be really honest about it. And, and I actually, one of the things that, that I have decided I'm going to start sharing more about that I haven't is that through my, you know, body image, and emotional eating issues, there was a period of really, really strict, restrictive dieting, mm. um, in which I, you know, lost, I was a very low body fat percentage and actually dealt with hypothalamic amenorrhea for three years. So didn't have a period for, for three years. And, um, that's something that recently I've started to talk about a little bit more as well, realizing that it's, you know, it's something that we don't, it's not a conversation that people are open about. Yeah. I can imagine because which is, I've come to this place in my life where I realize that my overarching goal in this world is peace and peace to me is like the ability to just be yourself and to like, everybody just wants to be loved and accepted for what they are. Like take all the, the trimmings and all the other stuff away. You know, this is just me. And hence we're calling this naked Sunday. Right. But like me for what I am, I am enough. And I think that, that what you're talking about, like even something like it's a, it's a, biological physiological thing that's going on why can't we have a conversation about it? it's just it's just stuff it, it's not it's yeah not, it's an, it's a part of what your experience is and part of what your struggle is but it's not it's not who you are which but it, it's, it's i'm sorry sorry to interrupt you there but at, okay. as a as a female, it's really, so what you just said is really important because, you know, we all want to be loved and accepted for who we are and we want to feel connected to other people. And, and so on one side, like this experience was like, I felt connected to other people because I was an athlete at that point. I was, I was competing in CrossFit, competing in Olympic weightlifting, but at the same time, like I didn't feel like myself because having a menstrual cycle is like part of the female, like mystery and joy and all of that stuff, even though having a period kind of sucks sometimes, but you know, it's there for a reason, but it makes you feel almost like less feminine and less female to not have it. And so it's weird because it's like, I was in this sort of diet, like sort of like dichotomy of like, okay, well, I'm an athlete. I identify with that, but also like, I'm not identifying with this female side. Cause there's this part of me that's like kind of disappeared. Mm. Yeah. You, I'm really glad you brought up that because I'm in my follow-up question. It's going to be a fun part. I, I have this belief that universally, especially more like Western culture, we're in a bit of an identity crisis right now. We are trying to jump from one label to another label to just like feel like we belong in something, though we are the, the congruence and the collaboration of a lot of different labels. And it's hard when you put all this, like, what does it mean to be an athlete? Well, that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. If somebody was bullied by an athlete, they probably think athletes are assholes. If somebody was like, this is where I found homes, where I found peace, where I found connection to a tribe through athletics, I love being an athlete, right? And so this really interesting thing. And I think we get so stuck on those things opposed to just focusing like, who is this person? Which leads to my first favorite question to ask people, Jillian, who are you? 
Who am I? I think that that is a, is a bit of a loaded question because I think that who I am is very fluid and who I am is something that changes depending because I'm, I consider myself to be a very adaptable person. Like you can pick me up and drop me anywhere and I'll like figure it out, which is, is interesting because I'm not necessarily an extrovert, which I think that a lot of people, because I love to do like I love to create content. I have no problem showing up on video. Um, I was a CrossFit coach for many years. Um, you know, I, I've spoken in public in front of so many people, but I'm not extroverted. I'm actually, uh, I'm actually pretty introverted in the sense that I like I get really overwhelmed if I if I have to be around groups for too long. Mm. Um, I'm very much like a one-on-one person, uh, but I love public speaking, and so I think that there's. But at the same time, I'm very adaptable. So like you could, I could live anywhere pr- pretty much. I, I can adapt to pretty much anything, I think. And so who I am, I think has changed a lot. But who, I, who I've always been is someone that's very determined to get shit done. Um, curious. Uh, I've always been a, like a voracious reader. Um, I, I love hearing about other people's stories. And I think that's why I read so much fiction. Um, I'm a podcast addict. I know it's funny because I feel like when you talk to other coaches, it's like, oh, you know, you must be reading so much nonfiction. I always have at least one fiction book going. And it's, it's usually something that's almost, that's like science fiction fantasy. Um, I'm, I am an Enneagram eight. Who else am I? Uh, I'm a really fiercely loyal friend, like a really fiercely loyal friend. And I'm also very direct. I'm very honest. I am less insecure than I used to be. And I think I'm pretty cool. I think you're pretty cool too. Thanks. I've like just genuinely enjoyed your company so much. Not even just right now, but like through our couple conversations, like you're, Again, it's the the honesty piece is huge. Um, what I actually really appreciate about how you just described yourself, and don't get me wrong, I asked that question that way for a very specific reason because I get an amazing answer. Yeah, every time, and it's it doesn't. I have zero expectations of what it is because I want to see how somebody goes about solving this kind of. You're right, loaded question. Like, what does it mean? And what I heard when you got to the end of it, when you boiled it down to in so many words, like when you started saying, I'm a loyal friend, I'm honest, I'm, you know, uh, I'm curious. What I hear when I hear those things that I, I hear core values and mm-hmm. I have this sneaking suspicion and this happens to be how I live my life is that if we define ourselves by our values, it brings about that ability to live in various scenarios, right? The, the, that, you, that you just alluded to, you're, you're so adaptable because of those things, right? You're loyal to, if I'm going to go do this thing, I'm going to go get it done. I'm mm-hmm. curious enough to go figure out some of the other things. I'm honest in a saying, I don't know. And I think that's a really powerful thing for people to just come to terms with because especially as a coach, I know I've struggled with the, the, the coming to terms with that. It's like when I said, yeah. I don't know, or worse yet, especially as a proud man in the way I'm like with my 
ego that I do know I have is like saying I was wrong or saying sorry. It's like the I, it's like a dagger through my chest. Like I, don't, I hate being wrong. I want to be. I right mean, to all be the fair, I want to. To be fair, like being right is like one of my favorite things. And I have this friend that I constantly that we argue. Like part of our friendship is that we argue about stupid things, but like in a fun way. Mm. And uh, and and it, I get so much pleasure out of when he goes, "You're right. You're totally right." And I'm like, "Ugh." I love those words. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, it's interesting because like like we were talking about before we started recording with clients, it's like, I love that feeling, but not because I'm forcing them into something. Whereas like if I'm arguing with a friend, like, yeah, I want you to think I'm right. And like, I just want to force you into it. But when I'm working with clients, it's like, I want them to come back and tell me that because I've helped them find the solution that they already knew that they needed. Yeah. And and like, otherwise, I mean, I think that there is something to be said. I know that you as a man are very like in touch with a lot of emotions that we don't necessarily consider to be like extremely masculine. And I think that myself as a female, I am in t- more in touch with my masculine side, which I think maybe in past generations might've been construed as like, oh, like you must be a, a lesbian or something, which I'm totally not. I absolutely adore men. I daydream about them constantly and I think they're beautiful and uh, you know, but I feel like I do have similar, similarly to like you are a straight man and you're married, like, but you're in touch with some of your more feminine attributes. So much so that my wife jokes that I'm the chick in our relationship. So, you know, I I like talking about my feelings, (laughs) but like, why is that so stigmatized? And like, I, and it's, it's like, it's stigmatized. And also for me, for myself, because of kind of like the way that I grew up where like my mom passed away when I was really young, I'm the oldest child. Um, and so I kind of was like, I kind of felt like vulnerability was like not a thing that I was going to do because there was like a lot of emotions that I didn't want to deal with. Um, and so I sort of developed that more masculine, the more masculine attributes of like getting shit done, like being a little bit more dominant and like, you know, not asking for help, those sort of typical male attributes. But it's like, why is it stigmatized for males to have more feminine? I like, I just, I, I'm so excited that I've been able to un- unravel <coughs> my feminine side so much more now. I really think that you're touching on something that. I think societally we're, we're grappling with that right now. I could be wrong because what do I know? Like at the end of the day, I'm just a dude thinking about what he sees in the world. But I really like how you're approaching it from, it's this questioning, like, why is it stigmatized? And it's, it was an earlier generation that was like, this is the way things were. And it worked for a time, but we're at a well, different time. For, and worked as a, such a, Worked as a subject. It worked to, to keep everyone in their like their like cultural, their like sociocultural like places. Like yeah. it could it it worked to like keep the women in the kitchen and to like keep the men in the workplace and to like keep men from like ever expressing their feelings and to keep women from like ever expressing their feelings, really, because yeah. women express their feelings, but they would express them to like their friends. Yeah. I think we're in this interesting shift. I've studied, I I basically just stare at Maslow's hierarchy of needs like all the time now. And it seems like we're coming out of this, I don't know, survival stage in the universe where like foods as a whole, as a whole, like throughout the world is like plentiful. Like we, for the most part, we're civilized enough. Like we all can survive, but now we're having this question of like, that got us to this point. Is this the way it's always gotta be? You know, and 
again, I use the word worked as a subjective term because not dying is, I guess, for some people working, but is not, I don't see it here fulfillment in that. I don't hear like, you know, especially as you're looking at adapting and being able to go find and be curious and, and find things that you really enjoy and find passion and love in, especially the way you're working with your clients. That's that rigid, that rigid structure doesn't, it doesn't accommodate for that. It doesn't accommodate for an individual to find themselves within that. I'm also curious because you brought up the, um, it's like the universe just kind of like speaking through people right now, but I had a conversation about firstborn children. So I'm firstborn son, Mm -hmm. firstborn kid. Um, I'm curious about the influence of being a firstborn of like, there's not a model before you of a, of a, of a sibling who's walked through some path of like how I've survived in this family structure. I'm, I'm curious if there's something around that. Cause I know a lot of, I know for me, I struggle with a lot of like being vulnerable. It's like, I got to strap in and like survive and not die in the world. How do I make this thing work and, you know, be responsible for everybody else and put that whole thing and, you know, vulnerability, it doesn't seem it this way now, but uh, I, I talk about my feelings a lot. I used to not talk about anything yeah. at all, anything of substance. I'm curious and I, maybe I'm just pontificating for a minute. And we, we no, I, I, I think, you know, I think that being the firstborn, I think there's a lot of layers to unpack as far as like, sure. as far as, I mean, I think that definitely being the firstborn is you feel a certain sense of responsibility. I feel like either being the firstborn, you feel a certain sense of responsibility, or you're just like, well, fuck this. I'm out of here. Like I'm not <laughs> taking responsibility for anybody. And for me, I think it was like a, like a shit storm of a lot of different things. Cause yeah. first of all, so my, my dad is like borderline Asperger's. Mm. I love him to death. He's the most intelligent person I've ever met, but he is like n- the least self-aware and least emotionally intelligent person I've ever met. Mm. Um, and, and my mom on the other hand was very like extremely emotionally intelligent, extremely empathetic, like just like warm, caring. Um, but my mom got sick and died when I was nine. Um, I was nine. My brother was four and a half. And so that changed the dynamic of the family. Um, And so from there, it was kind of like, uh, I, I really closed, I kind of closed myself off a lot because it was really hard for me to communicate with my, to communicate with my dad, like on an emotional level. Mm -hmm. And so our communication for a really long time was just like yelling at each other, which is so weird because like, if my dad has told me like, I think you're an angry person. Whereas like, anybody else that knows me is like, you're the least angry person I've ever met. Mm. But it's so weird how family can bring that out in you. Right. And yeah. Yeah. And so I, and I think anybody listening is like, oh yeah, my family knows how to wind me up like (laughs) more than anybody else. Because then, you know, like if you asked any of my clients or if you told any of my clients that I had this, that, that my dad was like, you're like, my dad once told me, he's like, you're single because, because you're angry. And I was like, I don't feel angry. I feel like you just make me angry. (laughs) (laughs) And so, (laughs) and, and so, uh, that was like an emotional, like, like not emotion, a communication thing that like we've been working on. Um, but yeah, I think as being the firstborn, I don't know if it was being the firstborns or just having like a lot of like a whole shit storm of other things that happened in my, in my life. Right. Um, and now I feel like now definitely like me and my little brother are very, very, very close. 
And I definitely feel some responsibility towards him, but it's actually strange because I'm a lot more like my dad. Like I'm a little bit fierier. Um, I've had to, to put a lot of work into becoming more emotionally intelligent, a lot of work into being more empathetic. Um, and maybe that was just sort of uncovering the like layers of stone that were over it. And my brother is like very, is naturally like softer and, and more, um, and more, I guess in, in tune or more sensitive to other people's needs, which is weird because I'm a coach. Mm. So I think that actually brings about an interesting and very distinct advantage for you long-term, right? In the beginning, it doesn't sound like an advantage. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you ever read David and Goliath by Malcolm Gladwell, that'd be a great book, um, where it's basically saying, we perceive certain disadvantages a certain way, but they actually mm -hmm. might be our greatest strength. Um, especially from what you just described, if you were not, and because you, 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 you described yourself a little more introverted, probably definitely more of an observer, observer kind of thing. And especially if you had to work very hard to tap into that EQ and to develop that emotional softness, I see it as an advantage because you're going to be able to see very subtle things in other people that, and know how to work through a lot of different barriers that other people would not ever even picked up on. I, I like to say the same thing myself. Like, Caleb, okay. thank you so much. That is like, I, I think you're like, I think you hit on something there because Go. I very, like, I have made a lot of, of significant effort, like, like direct significant, um, like directed effort in developing a, a certain level of emotional intelligence because I have seen what I didn't want. Like I've seen myself reflected as when I was a lot younger in my, in my dad and been like, I don't want to be like that. Wow. I don't want to treat people that way. I don't want to communicate that way. So thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. It, I'm saying it, I'm probably saying it just as much to hear myself feel better about my own issues with all that, but there's a, there's an interesting piece in there when somebody who's just naturally warm and fuzzy, like it just comes natural, right? That you often you hear, you know, the best athletes don't make the greatest coaches. Cause it's like, I could just do it. Right. Mm -hmm. And the person who was maybe not as good and they had to like work hard to uncover those pieces. It starts to, there's a process, right? The person who's just massively gifted can just walk through and just do it. But the other person finds a way to develop a process that's repeatable. And I know where there's certain things where I just have like gifts and I just walk in like, I just am doing this because this is how I do it. I don't have a process and I don't like when I get lost, I don't know how to get back to center. And I think that because of your process, you know, again, five, 10 years ago, that might not have felt that way, but here where you stand at, you know, clearly you're, you're becoming far more successful in your career. You stand to have that advantage because you know how to walk somebody through a long pipeline. I see a lot of people who are like, they only, they only coach like the high level athletes or whatnot. And I don't coach athletes anymore. It's like to get somebody from like a 90 to hundred, not to say it's not hard, but I think there's a lot more value. They will take somebody from a zero to a 50, you know, if I was thinking of a scale and it's because you have to identify like, what's the, 
what is that like deep, 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 dark thing that what's that really small thing to just get them through that piece. And we were talking about that motivational interviewing beforehand where like that's in the beginning, it's just getting somebody even like humor the notion of believing in themselves because so many people feel so defeated on so many things that the sense of like, sense of like self-worth and capacity to do anything is just basically just kicked in the face. And how do you bring somebody back from that? I, I, I think again, because what, it, just from a few conversations with you, sounds like because you have that, that little thing in there, you can walk somebody from that place. And you, you said, you, what, what was the book again? You wrote motivational interviewing for um... motivational interviewing for fitness and for fitness and health. I think it's called. Okay. And it's, Absolutely. It, it, I think I, I'm, I think I read it and then closed it and then opened it back up and started reading it again, like right afterwards. Wow. Yeah. It was fascinating. So I'm, I'm curious, you mentioned a little bit of some of your experience with your own health issues. Is that the mm-hmm. initial, initial driver to take you down this path? Like what, what really inspired you to go you know, you do clearly more than just help somebody eat in a way that works, yeah. help them lose, lose weight. So like, what took you this direction? So actually when I first started coaching, I didn't, I basically just thought I was, cause I was CrossFit. I was a CrossFit coach. Mm-hmm. Um, actually I'm going to, we got, we got time. I'm going to start at the beginning. Um, yes, yes we <laughs> so, got time. <laughs> so growing up, I was a chubby kid. I was also kind of like an, like an awkward, like an ugly duckling a little bit. I have this theory that people, when they're, when they're young and they're unattractive, they have to actually like develop like a a significant personality. And so I think that's where a lot of my personality came from is because I was a weird looking kid. I was adorable until I was like five. And then me and my brother have this, this thing where we're both missing teeth. Um, And so I was missing some teeth like as, as like a kid that shouldn't be missing teeth anymore. Um, and, and then I was chubby and for a while I had this terrible, like bold haircut and it was just like a not also I was into weird things. I was a fencer and I like That's cool. read a lot. I was very into Harry Potter, which I think is amazing. I mean, yeah. it was awesome, but it was just, it was kind of a, you know, not necessarily what you would think was whatever. Anyways, so I have this theory that when, when you are sort of this ugly duckling when you're younger, you have to develop a personality. And, and I definitely went through my awkward period for a good, like most of my, my, most of my childhood. Um, and I refused to eat vegetables. Uh, I would actually, I remember, I have distinct memories of, of pretending to, to have allergic reactions to vegetables. Like that's how much I hated them was I, I would, I would genuinely pretend that I had an allergy. Um, and I also, and, and also in my home, we were not allowed to eat like any type of junk food or like the typical fun foods that kids have. And so I remember someone had like gifted us a jar of Nutella or something like that. And I remember hiding in our pantry, eating spoonfuls of Nutella because I knew, knew that my dad would kill me if he found out. (laughs) And so it was, and, and so I created this sort of really disordered thought pattern around food because sugar and sweet things and, and all these fun kid foods were off limits to me. I remember my dad, um, when we were little, I stayed overnight at his girlfriend's house at one point. This was after my mom passed away. 
and um, and she had let me and and her kids at the time eat ice cream for breakfast, which is like like, okay, yeah, that's not the healthiest thing in the world, but eating ice cream for breakfast once in, you know, however long is not going to kill you, especially when you're generally a healthy eater. And my dad lost it, lost it. Like you would have thought that she said, no, I gave them heroin for breakfast. Wow. Yeah. And so that was kind of like the way that food was demonized in my house. And so what I would do is I would go to my friends' houses and I would just go nuts on like gushers and like fruit by the foot and like all the like fun snack foods because I couldn't eat that at home. And so obviously that contributed to me being a little bit chubbier. Um, and, and I distinctly remember when I was about 15, my dad looking at me and telling me like, you look like you're pregnant. And I was never obese or anything. I was just, and this is, this is, remember that he is a very, he is not emotionally intelligent, like does not understand how his, how, what he says affects other people. But that stuck with me. Like, I remember it it was, I think it was 15. I'm 33 now. Mm. Like that, you know, that was a long time ago. And so that was just one of the sort of bricks in the wall that became my emotional eating issues. Um, then I, I went to Spain as an exchange student in high school and there, there, you know, I could eat whatever. They didn't care what I ate. And, and also they didn't really have any kind of like, like consciousness around like what was healthy, what was not. Most things were homemade, but then we also ate like, you know, kinder, like kinder bueno and, and like, uh, and I would eat, you know, we would get food from the vending machine all the time. And it was, and nobody, nobody told me that that wasn't okay. I would eat cookies for breakfast. People eat cookies for breakfast in Spain. It's like normal. Um, but I lost a bunch of weight because I was really active and I was eating mostly home cooked food. And for anybody that hasn't traveled abroad, if you read a nutrition label here compared to a nutrition label in the States, like they are, there's actually, um, additives that are illegal in Europe that you can't import certain American foods because they have too much shit in them. Wow. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I was, and I was able to eat whatever I wanted. And so my weight went down. Um, but I didn't know how to eat still. It was just like my weight went down like sort of by accident because I was exercising more because I was walking everywhere. And then, um, it wasn't until college when I kind of realized like, okay, like healthy eating is a thing and I'm not doing it uh, because I ended up gaining a ton of weight. I was a very heavy drinker. I was a smoker. I was like wow. the poster child for like the freshman 15. Um, and yeah, I, yeah. you know, I'm sure I'm five foot one, like 15 to 20 pounds on someone that's five foot one is, you, you know, it shows. Um, and I realized that the turning point, this is, this is interesting is that the turning point for me was realizing that I had just broken up with a really toxic boyfriend. And I, I found out from a friend of ours that he really liked chubby girls. And I saw pictures of a couple of his other ex-girlfriends and they were all like, like big girls. Mm. And I was like, oh my God, I'm one of those girls. And that was like, that really hit me where I, I was like, I, I don't want to do this. I, I need to, like, something needs to change. Um, and so I literally changed so slowly. I started exercising like one day a week and then I started exercising two days a week. Um, I, at that point, I still wasn't eating vegetables. I started eating like, you know, the, the, the salads that count 
the least as salads, like a chicken Caesar salad and like a Chinese chicken salad. That's like, you know, the salad part is like, there's like three pieces of lettuce, but literally just made these tiny little changes. I remember I would go to the gym and I would bribe myself to go to the gym, but with cigarettes, because I would say, I can't have a cigarette until after I go to the gym today. And so that's how I would get myself to go to the gym. And I literally started running on the treadmill, like one minute running, like three or four minutes walking, one minute running and running at like a very slow speed. Um, And then like little by little, like, you know, I started to lose weight. I started to feel better about myself. And I started to, you know, the things that I did that were shitty for my health started to reduce. And the things that I did that were better for my health started to increase. Um, And then I just by like, I got lucky, I guess that I started dating someone that was a, that was a, a, a swimmer on the swim team. And so he was very into like eating healthy cooking, um, you know, didn't smoke. And so that relationship, although it was a toxic relationship actually kind of helped my healthy eating habits. Mm. Um, and then, and then from there, I, I started exercising more. I ended up working at Lululemon, um, and working at Lululemon was like, it just, it opened the, the world to me as far as exercise and different ways of eating. And, and that's when I really, really got interested in nutrition and actually what nutrition was and how it worked and, and why these changes to my diet were, were having these, these effects on my body. Um, so I did the Institute for Integrative Nutrition. I became a holistic health coach through, which that was my only training at that point. And I was not prepared to take on clients by any means, because that was just a block of information, but I had no context, right? Like I had made these changes and that, you know, I think for, is enough for a lot of people to say, well, I'm going to take on clients. But like for me, it wasn't enough context. And so I actually didn't start taking on clients until 10 years later. Wow. Yeah. That's like, so that's a significant gap. Holy cow. Yeah. But I was, so I was working in fitness the entire time. So I went from Lululemon, um, to, to TRX training. I was in sales at TRX training and it was there that I decided like, I can't work in sales anymore. I like, I don't know what I want to do with my life, but it is not this. And I, I quit my job. I went traveling. Um, I ended up in South America for three months, then went back to the States, ended up and then left and came to Europe and have been here ever since. And here was when I started coach, I actually started coaching CrossFit, which what you said about coaching, I, I think is very relevant because I am not an athletic person. Like naturally I'm not athletic. Hmm. I'm like the kind of person that literally like runs into tables and doors <laughs> all the time. Um, and I think that having to pay a lot of attention to my technique and to the way that my body moves made me a good coach because I knew what it felt like to not know how to do these things. Speaks to real empathy in there. There's a few interesting things that I, I don't know if I was unpacking or I was really working through in that, but I hear like these phases, right? Now I hear, Mm -hmm. I think back on relationships. I think back a lot of things in my life where like when I was in it, toxic, angry, pissed off, things like that. But again, I think of it almost like these are the phases of like, they were the tools, they were the medium by which I learned this lesson. And 
for me, somehow it's like brought me so much peace from all those things, right? And it sounds like you've kind of really, I've made peace with all those different relationships. Like this was this hard moment with my father and he said this, so it turned me in this direction. I learned like even just those words is like, this is the power of what words can be. Somebody mm-hmm. who's not, somebody who doesn't understand that uh, there's the heart math of like emotions, like that's math too. And that counts as part of the equation. Like we're not, we're not rocks. We're not metal. We're not, we're not plastic. We are something more. And that's not necessarily something we can just, you know, put in a a ledger. That's not something we can just quantify. And it's so powerful. I think it's the, these interesting, it is these interesting, painful experiences. Again, the, the sense of feeling awkward, and that's what I was trying to get back to. There's this, um, it was some like stupid meme, uh, you know, one of those like really just like the joke Instagram accounts. And he goes, mm-hmm. the, the, the quote was like, I don't trust anybody who's never had an awkward phase. So when you're talking about the, <laughs> the ugly duckling thing, I think that's hilarious. It's like, it's a, it's a sense where like, if the awkward phase to me is like that, that moment where like you're, you're vulnerable am- amidst your peers and you understand what it feels like to not just to have to create this value beyond just something that's materialistic. Well, have you seen, do you, have you ever seen 30 rock? The, the show 30 rock with Tina Fey? Very little bit. I, I okay. don't, I, not much though. So do you know um, John Hamm, who's the actor that's in uh, Mad Men? He's like extraordinarily yeah. good looking. So he's, there's an episode of the show in which, um, John Hamm is is dating Tina Fey and he doesn't realize that he has pretty privilege where like he is is dumb as a doorknob, but everyone treats him incredibly well because he's just so attractive. Huh. And so that's like, I saw that and I was like, oh my gosh, this is, I was like, I can't, I don't know. And like, I consider myself to be a pretty attractive person now. I'm like, I like how I look, but it's, it's one of those things that like growing up when you have to, when that, like, that's not a thing yeah. is, is like, okay, so I have to rely on all of my other skills. And it forces you to develop those skills. And I think, again, as life goes on, we realize like that's the most valuable thing because the looks will fade. And I, I'm just at a place in my life where I'm like very much like protective over my time and who I get to spend my time with. And if I can't have a conversation like we're having right now, I'm not going to do it. But every single person that I talk to that's has the same energy as you do, there's this, there's this struggle that I really admire and eat. And it's, everybody has a different way of going through it, but it brings substance and it brings like a humility and it brings this question of like, what is really the meaning of life to the forefront and providing service beyond just like, I want to put some money in my bank account, you know, like that's not a bad thing, but like, it's really powerful. So where are you at now? Like what, what is a process like with your clients? I obviously have like, you shared a little bit of some of like the fun results you get with people, but like, what does a process Mm -hmm. look like with you now? If somebody's like coming in, like, what is, how do you do that? Um, thank you so much for asking that question. I I love that question. I love thinking about it because it's, it's really changed a lot over the years. So I started taking on clients. Yeah. And, and this is, could you tell me, I'd love to hear like what changed like specifically. I think that would be really really important because I think a lot of people don't, 
coaching gets this big, broad brushstroke thing and people don't understand what the nuance of coaching is. And there's very distinct things. So if you could describe a little bit how it changed for you, I think people Definitely. will be able to see, see the variance for in other scenarios in their life. Definitely. So, so I started taking on nutrition clients because I was coaching CrossFit. I'm a level three CrossFit trainer. Um, at one point I thought CrossFit was going to be my, my career. Um, you know, I did, I used to translate for the seminar staff here in Barcelona. Uh, I did the, the seminar staff internship. So I, you know, I was, I was kind of like, I thought that was what I was going to do. And then I realized kind of after that, or, or sort of during that process, I realized that the hard part wasn't going and exercising for an hour. The hard part was knowing what to do when you're not in the gym. So it's easy to go and have someone tell you what to do. And what I saw here is also a huge opportunity because what was, what was happening was, is the, the sports nutritionist field was like blowing up. Like everybody and their mother was going to a sports nutritionist that was giving them a diet. And it was literally like, eat this at this time, eat this at this time, eat this at this time. And then like, you know, once a week have a cheat meal. And I was like, no, 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 this is not, this is, this is not what you need to be doing. But I didn't have a plan when I started. I just wanted to help people. And I had the knowledge. So I had done, apart from the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, Precision Nutrition, uh, or no, I started Precision Nutrition when I started taking on coaching clients, but I also had finished a sports nutrition course um, that I did here that was like, it was, it was like a three month course. It was pretty in depth um, here in Barcelona in Spanish. And, and so I had like a base, you know, I had this base of knowledge and I had an understanding of coaching from the coaching that I did in CrossFit. And so I was like, well, I'm going to start taking on coaching clients. And so I started out giving people like, you know, more quote unquote flexible meal plans, but it would take me like, oh my God, like I'm putting my hand, my head in my hand, in my hands right now, because it would take me like hours because I wanted to make it like, so, uh, you know, customized to the individual's needs and wants. And it was just like a nightmare. And so I very quickly realized that like, that was not the way to go. Um, and, and I also was like, was like, okay, well maybe then macro counting. And I, and then I, you know, realized that, you know, most people don't want to count their macros Mm -hmm. and, and the people that do like, that's not really the people that I want to work with. And so over this, like, iteration phase where I went kind of, you know, I, I, I essentially was kind of listening to what my clients wanted. And then I started to really nail down my niche and see where like the people that I had the most success with. And so I transferred to through precision nutrition, transferred to a more habit-based model um, in which, you know, as we mentioned before, it's very much based on motivational interviewing. Um, I work mostly with women uh, who have a background of yo-yo dieting and are looking to find balance and find control and let go of these rules so that they can actually focus on other things in their lives besides like, oh my God, I shouldn't be eating this and, and stop that guilt. Because I know what that's like. I know what it's like to go to a barbecue, for example. And, and I have like so many memories of like when I was dieting really strictly and had these very strict food rules going to, a barbecue and there's like food laid out on a table and I couldn't focus on the conversations I was having because I was so focused on like, Oh, Oh no, that food is going to finish. Like I better get over there and eat it. Mm. And, and this is what happens when you don't allow yourself to actually eat. And so there's a couple different things that need to happen. And I realized this very quickly that if we didn't work on the mindset, we were never going to get everything else to be consistent. And so with that, um, 
it has now transitioned, you know, over. So I, I stopped doing macro tracking and, and any type of meal plan now years ago. Uh, occasionally if a client is prepared for it, um, based on who they are and, and their, you know, their level of understanding and also their, their level of sort of like, uh, not being crazy food wise, if that makes sense. Uh, then we will maybe talk about macro tracking, but in general, that's not something we touch on. And we focus mainly on portion sizes using your hands, um, or the balance plate method. Uh, and really, but really the majority of the work that I do is around mindset and is around self-compassion and it's around resilience. So when I talk about those things, you're like, okay, but how am, if I come to you to lose weight, like, how is that relevant? And it's relevant because if you give yourself permission to eat, you are not going to be constantly obsessing over all the things that you can't have. And when you have any of those foods in front of you, it's going to be so much easier to eat in adequate portions because A, I'm going to give you the knowledge to know what an adequate portion is. And B, I'm never going to take anything out of your diet unless there's a medical need to. That taps on, and I want to keep hearing more, but I think what you hit in there is this scarcity mindset that most people operate mm-hmm. from no, 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 I can't, I can't, I can't, there's not enough. So when you do have the opportunity or your willpower, quote unquote, breaks, you binge in a way that's so detrimental to you. Not such like, like if you crushed a pint of ice cream today, like long, long term, like that's not, it's really not actually the end of the world unless you're like actually allergic to dairy or something like that. Yeah. Like you just alluded to like a medical reason, but the psychological damage from that moment becomes the guilt shame cycle afterwards and it becomes this bigger it 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 goes beyond just like this is just a moment in time hey it happened okay let me get back to living my life and that's the resilience piece is the like hey this happened and i'm going to continue on with my life and so i work with clients mostly now around it's a combination of mindful eating and sort of precision nutrition habit-based coaching. Um, and, and I work with people to, to like, ju- what, like what you just said is build that resilience piece of like, oh, and a lot of the time, and my clients probably think I'm crazy until they get to know me a little bit, but actually they don't because I explain it really well at the beginning. Um, and, but I remember, uh, you know, I've had clients in the past when I was still sort of developing my, my communication methods where they would be like, yeah, you know, I overate this weekend. I feel really bad about it. I felt really guilty. I'd be like, amazing. I'm so happy you had this experience. Let's talk about it. And they'd be like, what is wrong with you? (laughs) (laughs) And And I would be like, no, this is great. You know why? Because now we can look back at that experience and we can see what things you would like to replicate, what things you feel like you could change. And we can start working on building a totally different mindset around it the next time you're presented with this opportunity you're just speaking to awareness and that's really just so powerful because you're taking, you're taking like a perceived failure and making it okay. So people don't feel afraid to live their life again and maybe mess up the next time. There's, there's, it's like a, I got rewarded for doing anything. Like it's almost like you can't even fail from that perspective, especially if it's like, yeah. You, you can't, I mean, with, in, in my coaching and I tell my clients this, this is actually part of my onboarding is I tell them, I was like, I just want you to know, I am not going to focus on your weight. I'm not going to congratulate you for weight loss. 
I'm going to congratulate, congratulate you for being consistent with the behaviors that may or may not lead to weight loss. And, and I was like, so I want you to know that when we talk, we're going to pretty much not touch on your weight at all, because that's not interesting to me. You can't look down at the scale and like, you know, get angry at it and say, you go down. Like that's not the way it works. And so why would I focus on congratulating you for something that you can't actually control? It's true. That's, that's a, that's a, I really actually like the way you put that. I haven't heard somebody say it that way. I actually really like that. What is this? So it creates this resilient person at the end of it. What is it? What is the, I liked your conversation there, but like, how does somebody approach what does conversation or uh, motivational interviewing look like to you? You know, like you already said, like, hey, you failed, or I don't know, they not so much that. Well, yeah, I would I, ask them. I would ask them, why do you feel like you failed? Okay. Or what did the experience feel like? And so, motivational interviewing is just about asking questions, and it's also about affirming certain things. Like, I just got off the, a call with a client earlier, and he's someone that he's really struggling right now with prioritizing. Like, he feels like he shouldn't, he can't prioritize himself because he has to work, he has to cook for the family, he has all these other things, and so he feels guilty for prioritizing himself. And so, when he talks to me about things, I'm like, "This is what I'm hearing," and and you know, I re- kind of repeat back a little bit of what he says, and I say you know, you're a person that, that takes on a lot of responsibility. You take really good care of your family. And so I'm curious, you know, what might be a way that, you know, you can take care of yourself in the same way. And so I presenting it in that way to him, he was like, Oh, you know, I guess you're right. I do really prioritize my family a lot. And that maybe is taken away from the time that I prioritize myself. And so then we can open up a conversation rather than me being like, well, you need to prioritize yourself a little bit more because you're just stressed out all the time. Like, that's not how it works. And so maybe the process is a little bit longer, but it's like, you can tell someone to, it's like we were talking about, I think before we started recording, you can tell someone to do something all day long, but like, they're only going to do it when they're ready to do it. And what better way to get them ready to do it by, than by having them discover that they're ready themselves. It's so powerful to hear. And I think, I think it's important to note that you said it might take a little bit longer, but I think people only think of that immediate experience, right? That little bit longer, what, maybe it takes an hour for that one conversation. It might take two months for that conversation, but it would have taken you 20 years if you didn't have that conversation. Yeah. Or, or ever. So like long, longer is a longer is a subjective term as well, based on what, if you zoom out long enough, it could just be a blip. Yeah. I think that where, like the way that I think about it is that when I have sessions with my clients and this, this happens now more often than not, and this is how I know I'm doing something right. Is that a lot of the time I'll get on the call, a call with a client and they'll be like, kind of like down or, you know, they won't be in a great mood. Or they'll have had a hard day. And more often than not, they'll finish the call and be like, wow, I feel so much better now. And, or like, oh my gosh, I was not looking forward to this. And now I feel great. Or they'll end like yesterday, I was talking to a, a client and, and at the end of the call, I was like, so I know, I noticed you, you know, when, when I made that suggestion, you started smiling a lot. And she was like, yeah, like I'm actually 
excited to do this thing. And when she started the call, she was like, oh my gosh, I feel like I overate this week. I feel like you're going to be mad at me, blah, blah, blah. And we ended the call with her being really excited. And now she's able to be like, this call was yesterday, but she's now been consistent with something that she, her struggle is being consistent with anything. She's been consistent for two days now, which is better than zero days. We'll see how it goes, but this is, this is already a mindset shift based on me asking her questions instead of just telling her what to do. That's so empowering for an individual, especially since like, you're just letting, you're letting you as the individual get out of the way of them being successful. And that's such a, I think that's like a, an act of humility to say, like, I'm not telling you what to do. I believe in you enough to know that you got it. I'm just going to ask you the question so you can answer it. Yeah. And, and so what you just said there is it actually, it took me a really long time to get here. Like I, so I started taking on nutrition clients about four years ago. I would say that I've actually been a good coach for half of that. And so I apologize to anyone that was my client before that. I, 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 you probably got some good out of it because I wasn't like a terrible person. I didn't know what I was talking about as far as nutrition goes, but my coaching style was not as effective as it could have been. But I think that that is part of the problem. I was also charging a lot less. So the investment was a lot less. (laughs) Um, And, and now, you know, I feel also, also, I'm constantly reading, constantly learning, talking to other coaches, critiquing myself, looking back on my own actions and the way that I speak to clients and figuring out how I can improve. Uh, and I think that that is, is really, really valuable. I also think what you're bringing to the table has, pun intended, I guess, uh, has ramifications well beyond somebody's relationship with food. I think people undersell the power of what your relationship food with food is because we, when we come down to it, like you have to confront that relationship every day. You don't have to talk to people every day. If you don't want to, you don't have to do your job every, like you can, but you got to eat. You got to live. Exactly. You can quit smoking. You can quit drinking. You can quit drugs, but you cannot quit eating. Exactly. And I think as we're talking about how you're, you're changing a conversation somebody's having with themselves all the time, we're going to change that. You're empowering somebody to change the conversation with themselves. That is to a tone of more empathy, self-love, a little more self-respect. And I got to imagine they see that change in the way they talk to other people and the way they go about their job. I can only say from my own personal experience, changed a lot about how I looked at my own things. I had my own body image issues and still have plenty of that stuff to this day. I think CrossFit brought out some of those things. I own the box myself. So like there's something about the, the culture within that and not a bad thing, just something I learned about it. Um, I really, what do you typically see? Let me, I, I'm always curious. What do you see beyond the relationship with food? Like what are some of your fun examples? Yeah. Of so I, So this is a great day to ask this question because I actually just had a wrap-up session with a client that was with me for, I think, five or six months. And she is someone that came to me and she was like, she essentially, she was like, I hope you can help me because I've tried everything. She had had essentially been dieting on and off for the last 10 years. Um, She had, you know, you look at her and she was like, 
she wasn't horribly overweight. She had a couple kilos to lose, but she didn't look, you know, like from the outside, she didn't look like she had a, a ton of weight to lose. But I think that's also to said, there's something to be said for outside appearance does not reflect what's going on the inside. Mm. And, uh, which is a whole nother conversation. Um, but she was like, I feel terrible. She's like, I binge pretty much every night. Um, I like, I feel like I can't control myself. My willpower is out the window. I don't know what to do. And now in our wrap up conversation, she told me, she was like, I'm so excited to go to the beach this summer and wear a bikini. She was like, and it's not, and she goes, it's not because like, I feel like I look amazing. It's because I feel so confident and I feel like I have turned around a process that I thought I was never coming back from. Wow. And, and she also, she was like, you know what? My whole family is eating healthier now. She's like, I no longer have to make three meals for the family. I no longer have to make a meal for my kids, a meal for my husband and a meal for me. I, the entire family is eating better. She was like, I, you know, I feel motivated to exercise. I feel confident every day. She is just absolutely glowing. And, and the cool thing she was like, yeah, recommend me more books to read. She actually, um, she had, uh, I had, I had bought her, sorry. I think one of my headphones just died. Um, can you hear me still? I can still hear you. Okay. So she had, um, I had bought her for her birthday, Atomic Habits. Awesome. Love it. Yeah. And this, so this is actually something I buy for all of my clients for their birthdays. And so I bought it for her birthday and that was kind of her first foray into this type of, um, of mindset change as apart from what I had been teaching her. And she now has asked me for more books, more podcasts. Um, her and her husband are both getting really into mindset change and habit change. And so these are just some of the effects, you know, I think, when we're talking about weight loss, like it's never just about the weight loss. It's never just about the food. Like as far as emotional eating goes, she's like, I can enjoy a pizza with my family now. And I don't feel guilty about it. I don't feel like it's just ruined all my progress. And that strengthens the bonds that she has with her family. And that is something that, you know, it's one of those things that you come to me to help you lose weight, but you leave my services or my, my coaching feeling like you've gained so much self-confidence and so much awareness of who you are as a person and who you want to be. And so I try to give my clients tools to think long-term, like who do I want to, to create for myself beyond, you know, this program? Like I obviously teach them how to maintain the weight loss that they've achieved, but I also teach them how to continue to look forward and create stronger, better, more effective habits in the long run. You know, I'm out now myself out of the, the health in terms of just like directly coaching people on that. But one of the interesting things is always like what you're speaking to is that they don't realize the journey you're about to go on is far more than losing some weight, looking better naked. It's the stuff that's going to come after it. You don't realize that you start to, you know, you lose, say in the CrossFit world, right? I've never lifted a hundred pounds or whatever. I'm just pulling something out of my, it's pulling something out of my ass on this one. Once you lift a hundred pounds and you break that self-limiting belief of like the, that woman, you said like she, 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 uh, she never thought she'd be able to sit down and have a pizza with her family and not feel like I'm a piece of garbage or feel shame or whatever the thing was. Mm-hmm. 
you start to ask yourself, well, if I can do that, well, what else can I do? Exactly. That's exactly, that is like exactly what she said to me this morning. Wow. She was like, I, yeah. She was like, if I'm capable of doing this, she was like, I can do so many other things. And I was like, hell yeah, you can. It's so cool to see that. And it's, I heard this term once or this quote or whatever it is, phrase, small hinges open large doors. And it is something as simple as like, when I have a, when I say different words to myself, when I have this bite of food, when I change it, mm-hmm. my trajectory of life was going that way. It's now that way. As long as I keep saying these same words, it's whoop, a completely different path. And I, it's gotta be so gratifying. And I can only speak to some of my own experience when you're was like, and you're like, usually it's like, I didn't do much. I just asked you a couple of questions, right? You had to, they had to do the work, but it's so cool to feel like you got to share. You get to hear the story along the way of like, just watching them really work through something that was clearly something deeply wound within themselves. That's gotta be, that's so powerful. And I love the way you just, you work through that with people. It's a, it's a really, really cool process. And a lot of it is also based around the concepts of mindful eating. And I know that mindfulness is like one of those like buzzwords that's been thrown around a lot lately, but what it really comes down to. And I actually like to, I like to call it conscious nutrition um, because it's becoming conscious of what, of what your actions are, what your thoughts are, and you can't change something you're not aware of. right? Right. And so the first step is being like, okay, what are my actual habits? Like, what do I actually do? How do I think? And once I'm aware of that, how can I make changes? And, and it's being, it's having that mindset of, okay, I'm going to slow down to speed up. I'm going to slow down in my meal. So a lot of, a lot of the clients that come to me, their first habit that we work on is literally eating more slowly in one meal per day, one meal. And, and that will, that's like the, the, the like ball, the wheel that gets rolling And it just builds and builds and builds and giving yourself just space to like sit down at a table and take a couple deep breaths and then start eating is often the changer between a lot of the time. I feel like in the world that we live in, we're always going so quickly. Now you'll finish a meal and be like, wait, what did I even eat? And so it's no wonder that you're looking for a snack afterwards or that you finish your plate, even though it's way too much food for you. And so just slowing down is such a game changer, not to mention the physiological benefits of chewing your food better uh, and actually reducing your stress while you're sitting and eating that have actual physiological benefits to how you digest food and how you absorb nutrients. Um, and that's where, you know, I think that there's a lot to be said for cool. Like you want to track your macros, you want to go to a strict diet, that's fine. But I like to focus on not just on the what, but I like to focus on the how. Because the how you can control anywhere you are. Like you can go on vacation and control how you eat. You might not be able to control what you eat, but you can always control how you eat it. Mm. And so that is the, like the key set of habits that I work on my clients with. I love that. And I think you're in an interesting spot too. Correct me if I'm wrong. I had my aunt, I used to live in Spain, but I've been to France a lot. My family's from France, my mother's from France, my grandparents are still there. Culturally, the consumption of food is a far different experience. It's a little slower. We take time. You know, I think I just think about like lunches and dinners and like it's just 
you're just sitting there and it's part of this conversation. You're, I, I really appreciate that you brought that up, at least like in the Western culture, people barely eating is like breathing. It just happened like that. And like pack things up, throw it out. Like I'm on to the next thing. And like, let me just grind my face off to the next piece. Do you are, I, I would actually just culturally curious. Are you seeing that change a little bit over there versus like how it is over here? Or is it still like that? Is that, is that appreciation for that slower pace? Like, cause I have personally, there's fewer joys I have in this. Like one of my favorite joys in this world is to sit down and to share a meal with somebody, probably from my upbringing, like to sit there and like talk and to like mm -hmm. maybe have a glass of wine, have a nice, like a truly exquisite meal together. And it could also just be like burger and fries. Do you see that a lot culturally? Like the differences there, like playing a big, big role? Um, it's interesting because there's, so there's an idea, there's a concept here called sobre mesa. And sobre mesa is essentially when you sit at the table and you spend a lot of time at the table, usually at midday. Um, but I don't, even though people do tend to spend more time eating, um, there is, they're not necessarily eating in a conscious way. Really? I think a lot of people are like, there is definitely not a culture here. Like it's not as common for people to like eat on the go as it is for people here, or sorry, as it is for people in the States. Um, but I do find, especially now people just aren't, they're not fully aware of what they're eating. They're definitely not, not, not chewing their food well in a lot of cases. Um, and I think that that, sort of the idea of sobre mesa and spending a lot of time eating, spending a lot of time enjoying a meal um, is something that is a lot of the time reserved for the weekend. And it, de it also depends on the, the type of person because that is something very cultural. And I find that now culture is changing a lot because there's you know, less time to do things, more time on social media, more, you know, more commitments, right? People are running around from point A to point B. There's, you know, the delivery, especially through quarantine and stuff, delivery has become like, like very, very big. Everyone's ordering delivery now. Um, and I talk to a lot of people that, you know, maybe they do cook, but their idea of cooking is like opening up a couple of jars of something and then like putting it in the microwave. And so, I think that there, you know, the, the culture of eating is very different than in the States. Um, in the States, for example, like you can find snacks, like any type of snack you want. And here the snacks are pretty much limited to like breadsticks, nuts, fruit, cheese, meat, like, and then like random like cookies and donuts and stuff like that. But like in the States, you go to Whole Foods and you have like organic shaman blessed vegan protein bars. And then you have like organic and then you have like non-organic like bodybuilder fitness bars and then you have like chia puddings made by elves in Missouri <laughs> and like and then and then you have you know and then you have like oh that got me good <laughs> I don't know high energy good. tree nuts and so you have like all of these options. So like in the States, it's interesting because people are always like, well, it's really hard to eat to eat healthy in the States. I'm like, no, it's actually really easy to eat healthy in the States if you have money. Like, yeah. but eating well in the States is so easy if you like, if you are, you know, you know where to, where to buy things and you have the money to buy them. 
Whereas in Spain, I think it's really, there's a low barrier to entry for eating really healthy, but people don't necessarily do it because the culture around it, like for example, a sandwich is like the, is like the national food, but it's like, it's not like a, like a sandwich. It's like a baguette, like, like half a baguette filled with like, you know, pieces of like chorizo, which is like chorizo is like basically just fat, you know? Sounds tasty. Yeah. And so it's super tasty, but like, that's like the, you know, the very common, like people are like, Oh, like we're going to go on a hike. What should we take? Like a sandwich. And you're like, you just took an entire baguette and put like one piece of meat in it. So you're just essentially eating like a giant block of carbs and that's all you're eating all day. Um, but I think that it's also fruit and vegetables are a lot cheaper here. I mean, obviously our cost of living is a, is a little bit lower or a lot lower depending on where you live in the States. Um, but the, we have, a, they grow so much here in Spain, like fruit and vegetables are amazing. I buy all organic fruit and vegetables and it's like, I think I spend like 30 euros a week. Wow. Yeah. Which is like 40 bucks a week to eat all organic fruits and vegetables and it's all organic local. Um, and so I think, and then I think the culture around eating is also a lot of people just don't want to put a lot of thought into it. Hmm. So you brought up two interesting things when you're seeing the differences between the culture. It seems a lot of like the what and the how are almost flipped in terms of awareness from the cultures. Like yeah. they, they have the what, don't know how. And the other one is like, I'd have the how, but I don't know what. That's a strange, that's a really strange setup. So you're kind of marrying the two pieces and, and, and bridging the gap between those two pieces so that people can do it confidently and and consistently, which is of course always the most important part. How do you do it consistently? Um, there might've been something else I was thinking about in there, but I, I think I lost my train of thought on it. Yeah, no worries. Um, I, I think that it is, it is really interesting talking to people more and understanding, because I think they still have an understanding here of, um, of, okay, well, if I'm going to lose weight or if I'm going to get healthy, I just need you to tell me what to eat. I just need you to tell me what to do. And, and I, always, and I tell them, I'm like, look, I could do that, but it's not, it's, it's going to be useful for you for like a couple of months. And I want this to be useful for you forever. And, but here it's like, a lot of people will tell me, wait, you're going to charge me how much? And you're not even going to tell me what to eat. And I'm like, no, that's exactly why I'm charging that much is because I'm not going to tell you what to eat. Cause that would be the easy thing that would, it would be easy to just print out a meal plan and be like, here you go, eat this. And I've worked with people that are like, oh yeah, I've been following the exact same meal plan for the last three years. I'm like, you've been eating exactly the same thing for three years. Like no wonder you can't, you feel like you can't stick to it. No wonder your body is all messed up. No wonder you have no sex drive. Like you're not, you've been, you've been dieting for three years. Hmm. Um, and I mean, that is, it's, it's, it's definitely something I've struggled with as because my client base is like half from here, half um, English speaking. And I've struggled with it because a lot of people will just flat out be like, wow, I thought like they'll, they'll hear what my services include and they'll be like, oh my gosh, this sounds amazing. I really want to start. And I'll tell them how much it costs. And they're like, oh, I was expecting it to be like this much. And I'm like, okay, I would love to only have to charge you that much, but I also have to eat. Um, <laughs> and, and like, and, and, and I know that you were so excited about everything that the, the service includes because it is a lot of effort on my part. And I am imparting a lot of care and effort and knowledge to the work that I'm putting into you. 
And so, you know, it, it like, I, I can't, I can't do the work for that much. It's, it's devaluing what I do. Like, I want you to pay me for the value. I don't want you to pay me because, you know, because I'm giving you, you know, X piece of paper, because that's not valuable. Well, you're bringing up something that starts to lean in towards my interesting area of discussions with things that I typically help people with, but you're speaking now to somebody who's now, that's a difference between two different types of people and that different types of people in the sense of like good, bad, it's just like people at different stages in their life. And, you know, correct me if you've heard differently, but you have to have hit your head against the wall enough times to go the way I've been doing it. It doesn't work. And you probably had to be successful opening your mind to the fact that somebody asking you questions is the most valuable thing that somebody could do to give you their time, not to give you just the answer is far more valuable. What, what I find with a lot of coaches and, you know, you've probably seen the same thing. A lot of coaches really struggle to charge for their services. They really struggle to value themselves properly. It's also, it took me a really long time. Right. And I think that, and this is for anybody that's a coach that's out there. A lot of people sell the wrong thing. They sell, a lot of people sell the how, as opposed to selling the what, which ironically, it's like, you're going to teach them the how. I'm like, this is what's going to happen after you've committed, Mm -hmm. right? That's kind of the, that's this interesting piece of like, so what do you want? I'm going to sell you on your goal. What is that goal worth, right? And you have to just, when you talked about that woman that was, she's like, I never thought I was going to, be able to walk on the beach in a bikini and feel confident or have a pizza with my family and feel like you ask somebody that question. Well, what would that worth? What would that be worth to you? Yeah. Like exactly. And how do you put a number on that? And it's so funny because I don't know how many people that I'll, and this has happened various times where like I've had a call with someone and they've been like, wow, you know, like that's, that's expensive, whatever. And then they cut and then they come back a year later and they're like, Hey, so I'm ready now. And I'm like, Oh honey, we could have saved you so much time. Yeah. That's tough. That's a hard piece. This as a coach, because we all want to help people so much that you're like, you can't, you can't like pour that out, but it's, um, I, I, and I'm just only brushing on this piece a little bit because I think a lot of coaches really, 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 really struggle on this piece, but it's, it's also knowing who you wish to serve and where, and what stage you are in your career. You know, like you said earlier in the beginning of your career was, it was a lot of telling people what to do, but you also didn't charge as much. And, you know, it was more like the intent. I needed some reps. I needed to be able to see things in a different light. Oh, it's also why I've seen that people, when they're ready to truly invest in real coaching, which IE is what we're talking about, uh, the motivational interviewing, the thing, you know, things that have the bones of like cognitive behavioral therapy, things like that, where it's truly real conversation that, you know, somebody's typically in their thirties or their forties, usually by and large, somebody who's failed a bunch and they're ready. Like, you know what? I just want somebody who's going to be a real human being and walk through stuff with me. And like, I know some stuff in this life and I've tried a few bunch of things. It didn't work. So maybe this time it's ready to go. I find that to just be such a it's just different. You just realize people just go through these different stages in life. And my hope is that, you know, coaches start to realize that when you start banging your head against the wall, like it's not the, it's not the client's bad. It's just that they're not, they're not in that stage of their life. And it's, and and I, and also like, I think as a coach, like you don't want to work with a client that's not ready. No. Well, that's because then it turns into preaching basically to be like, I'm telling you, this is what the right thing to do is 
but it leads back to what we talked about in the beginning. That's not, that's not a long-term effective strategy. It might get you somewhere for a week or two or a month or whatever, but it's not going to really solve the problem. Um, I just lost your audio. So I saw your mouth moving and it looked like you were saying something very amazing, um, but I did not hear it. Can you hear me now? I can hear you now. Just like a good old Verizon commercial. Um, yes. I was saying that, you know, coaches understanding you really do want to find the right fit. And basically that's yeah. what we're saying. If you're not, you're not finding the right fit, it turns into this preaching dependency kind of situation, codependent kind of relationship. That's not long-term beneficial for either party. Not, not you as a coach, not you as not the client. And ultimately like it matters that the client finds success because you want them to have a good experience. So they'll tell their friends, like that's, that's kind of the best way to market yourself is to really just give amazing service to somebody and deliver on that. Um, there was something else in there that I was thinking about, but I've, I get so, yep, you get me so, have so many, you get stir so many thoughts up in my head. Like I get, I got, I got to go to nine directions. Yeah, um, no, but I think that, that what you, so what you just touched on, I think is really important because I think a lot of coaches, and I tried to do this for a really long time, is a lot of coaches want to be the coach that is, that is right for everyone. And like, that's the, the thing is, is like, if you constantly try to be the coach that's right for everyone, you're like, you're going to end up coaching people that suck to like, that suck to coach. Yeah. And it's like, and, and someone said to me once, they're like, there's 20% of the clients are going to cause 80% of the problems. And so if you, if you choose your clients, well, you're going to save yourself a lot of problems in the long run. And I struggled with that for a really long time. So it was like, but, but I need to make money, but I need to make money. Like I, 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 like I need to live, you know what I mean? And once you really start, and I think that that is also why that you mentioned that you're really loving my, my Instagram post lately is because I am, have hit in the last, I would say I've been nailing down my niche now for a while and I've just now become really good at communicating it. Mm -hmm. And and being able to communicate who you work with and why those people should work with you is a skill that takes time to hone. It's also really knowing who you are as a human and being okay with who you are as a human. I think that's the most, I think that's what the practice of being so vulnerable is so special about because it's like, this is really me. Do you really like me? Like that and either is going to turn somebody on or is going to turn them off. And that's a, that's okay. Like it's okay to be a little polarizing because long-term it's going to work out better. So exactly. Sure and I think that niching, niching down is like one of the scariest things to do as a client. I know you have a really solid niche and you're very clear on what your niche is. And I think that that is something is like, I wish that I had realized years ago that like niching down is actually opening up my client base the truth well i want to make sure i respect your time because i know you got to go to something in a little bit i only have two questions so we'll make the first one real quick yes what do what advice do you have for somebody who's looking to make real change um somebody that is looking to make real change be aware of what you are doing now and how that compares to the change that you would like to make and start really small don't Super. think of it as I think, I think what we often get stuck thinking is like, I want to get to the flight. I want to get to the top of the stairs, but like to get to the top of the stairs, you have to get to the first step first. And so think about what is the next easiest step I can take? 
not like what's a super complicated, perfect, like perfect protocol. It's going to be biohacking, like super amazing. No, just like take, take the next easiest step. Assure yourself that you can be consistent with it. Like that you can do it pretty much every day. And it's not like fucking up your life. And then, and then add complexity, but like, don't add complexity and then expect that that's going to stick and actually change. I could not have said that better myself. I love that. You're going to close it out with my second favorite, possibly my first favorite question, but similar idea. What is your purpose? What is my purpose? My purpose is to, is to help other people do really good things for themselves. That was the most concise yet beautiful response I've had to that question. Usually I get like a long one and that's like the similar as the, who are you question? That mm-hmm. was really good. I love that. That might just be my, like my clip for this one. Um, yeah. If somebody, I mean, obviously you're awesome. Somebody's going to go, yo, she's, she's the bomb.com. I've got to work with her. She solved my problem. How could somebody connect with you? Yeah. So, um, even if you don't want to work with me, even if you just want to like reach out and be like, Hey, I like the thing that you said, or if you want to reach out and be like, Hey, you're an idiot. That's cool too. Um, I, I decided <laughs> that hate, I decided that haters are cool. Um, <laughs> if you have haters, you're doing something right. Right. Truth. Um, and so you can reach me on Instagram at bite size nutri. Um, so it's like bite size, like a bite size candy bar and then nutri like nutrition. Um, you I'm, that is my handle on Instagram. That is my handle on YouTube. That is my handle on clubhouse. That is what, where else do I use that handle? Pretty much everywhere. Look at me on, look for me on any social media platform with that. Um, my website is bitesize.es slash en, unless you want to read it in Spanish, in which case you can leave the slash en off and you can try to read it in Spanish. That's totally fine. Um, (laughs) Or you can come visit me in Barcelona. I mean, I need a vacation anyway. So, you know. Perfect. We'll, we'll take a trip out there. We'll come, I'll travel Europe. We'll come say hi and we'll have a good old time. Um, Jillian, thank you so much for coming on today. Like this has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, anything else you want to share with people before we head off? Um, no, thank you. This is awesome. It's it's like so great to just kind of riff with people and and have a chance to talk about like coaching and life and all that good stuff. Well, it was my pleasure. You're, you're a pleasure to have on the show today. And uh, I don't think this will be the last time we have you on the show. So you got, you got tons of info to share. And I, I love your, 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 your message. Um, aside from that guys, make sure you go check her out. I'll put all the, that info in the, the notes and uh, until next time, much love.